Everybody was dancing in the moonlight. Dancing in the moonlight. Everybody was feeling warm and bright. It's such a fine and natural sight. Everybody was dancing in the moonlight. No, we're not talking about one-hit wonders from the 70s. No, we're not talking about a walk to remember. Today, our topic is the very first TV show we've ever done on Pop Culture Catechism. We're talking about The Umbrella Academy. Let's go. Welcome to Pop Culture Catechism, where we take a look at art from pop culture and uncover the true, good, and beautiful elements found therein. Let's get started. Welcome to Pop Culture Catechism on Awakened Catholic. You can support this show and other shows like it on Awakened Catholic by going to awakencatholic.org and becoming part of the Awakened Nation by choosing to donate on a monthly basis. Any little bit you can give helps keep this studio running and... Um, helps keep shows like this keep, keep happening. You can also do a one-time donation. We also now have the Awaken app where you can have access to all the shows and lots of cool content. Um, and if you are part of the Awaken Nation and make that monthly donation, you also get premium content through the Awaken app. Another way you can support us is through downloading the Hallow app. If you're looking for a way to jumpstart your prayer life, Hallow is an awesome way to incorporate prayer life, to incorporate meditative prayer into your prayer life. You can do it in the car. You can just put in your earbuds and, and, and do the rosary or do Lexio Divina. Um, they have the voice of Jesus from, from the, the chosen TV series doing some meditations. It's really cool. My wife uses it all the time on lots of the, the staff here at uh, awaken use it. So go to hallow.app slash awaken and you can get a free month of premium. And that really helps us out. Um, so that's an awesome way you can support the show. And of course you can always subscribe, like share, hit that little bell on YouTube, give us a rating on, on iTunes or, or, or Spotify, write a review. All that stuff helps share the show. Uh, today we're talking about Umbrella Academy. So if you know anyone who binged this show and loves it, uh, please share this episode with them. My guest today, I'm so excited to have this guy on all the way from the Arid Luen in Middle Earth. We have Gimli, son of Glowin, here with us. No, I'm just kidding. We have Tony Vicinda, um, who is... Uh, Tony, Welcome to the show. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you do so much cool stuff. You're involved in youth ministry. You're an entrepreneur. You're involved in, in, in games and uh, tabletops. And, uh, and you, you, you just moved across the country recently and you're involved in all sorts of cool ministry. And tell, tell us about yourself. I love, I love it because it's also always like uh, you have a short attention span. You do way too many things. Uh, you, you know, uh, whether you're doing any of them well is is easily questionable. Now, uh, my name is Tony Vicinda. Uh, I am and was a longtime youth minister uh, who, through the course of that, ended up starting a, uh, a ministry that helped support other youth ministers, Project YM, uh, that I helped build over the course of the last couple of decades, and then recently stepped back from during the course of time there, um, starting kind of as a lark at a conference we started making beard balm that was inspired by the catholic tradition and that grew into a company called catholic balm co where we make lip balms lotions beard balms and other products uh, mm -hmm. that are daily reminders of our universal call to everyday holiness um, and that's actually my full-time gig now when i stepped away from catholic balm co i started paying myself a salary uh, from that for the first time in addition to that i do game design work uh, we have a game called brand standing it's a, a storytelling brand building game that we're getting ready to relaunch uh, on Kickstarter and successfully created a beard-based RPG because I know how to make my niches cross over each other That's awesome. uh, recently. So I'm um, a huge fan of tabletop stuff, do a lot of tabletop content and create.
Nation, uh, and even make some tabletop inspired beard bombs under the brand That's Plus awesome. One EXP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but we moved to Philly about a year ago because um, for years I would tell people, hey, if you want to work really closely with a group of six to eight teenagers. Um, there's a role for that. That role is called small group leader. That's not mm-hmm. what a coordinator or director of youth ministry at a parish typically does. If you only have six to eight youth in your parish, that may be different. Um, but if you want to, if you really want to be investing directly in the life of teens, be a small group leader. And I would constantly have people come to me when I was working at a parish as a director of evangelization and outreach and just say, hey, like, we, I, I feel really called to do this. The parish should have a ministry for that. And mm-hmm. kind of had to push back and say, like, why does the parish need to have a ministry for any of us to live out our unique callings? Amen. If you feel called directly to do something, you should go do that. Yeah. I mean, we can have bigger conversations about whether the parish should be involved, but you've got to realize that actually puts a lot of things on you yeah. and doesn't necessarily give you all of the support that you're hoping it's going to do. A lot of times people are looking for the emotional validation of saying, does my parish see me and support yeah. me? Uh-huh. Know what I'm doing, or does the parish think this thing that I feel called to is important? And um, so, with all those things kind of together, I love talking to people about the faith. I love talking to people mm-hmm. who are far from God about the faith. I love sitting down with a uh, board game or a beer. That is a fly on my head. I'm not my. <laughs> Uh, the um, sitting down with a board game or a beer or a cup of coffee and just talking about who they are, what they do, getting to know who they are, understanding what they think about life and faith and talking about what I believe about life and faith and looking for the kind of resonant moments of goodness, truth, and beauty. And so I was running really successful evangelization programs. We had hundreds of adults every year who Mm -hmm. were going through the programs that we were doing um, but I hate coordinating evangelization programs. What I love doing is talking to people about the faith. So um, quit my job. Uh, we moved across the country to Philly, mm-hmm. started working at uh, Catholic Balm Co. full time. Uh, and started something called the House of Broken Loaves, where really our, our desire is just to follow the great commandment, to love God and to love our neighbors in the way that he told us to. And this is kind of a, a grand experiment in the middle of a global quarantine yeah. to see uh, what that all looks like and, mm-hmm. and what that actually feels like when you start to do it in a more intentional way. Yeah. Um, and not to turn people into projects, but just to say the neighborhood is our mission ground. Like mm-hmm. we're really incarnated in what God intends the church to do in a very small subsection of our parish. Um, and it, there's been tons of blessings, even as we've kind of had to go way slower than we anticipated because awesome. of quarantine. So that's, that's the short, that, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the super short is go to TonyVicinda.com and you can see like everything I do for the <laughs> yeah. most part, we have yeah. on one page. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. And that's, that's so important that relationship. I think a lot of times we, we forget that, um, you know, spreading the gospel and being Christians, a lot of times it's just about relationships and getting to know people. So uh, I, I love that you're doing that. And uh, yeah, God bless you on that. Let's talk a bit about um, Umbrella Academy. So this show, if you don't know, it was one of the, the top shows on Netflix. It's got two seasons so far. The last season just came out uh, this summer and uh, this past summer, 2020. And it's based on a comic book that was developed and written by the ex-lead singer of My Chemical Romance. His name is Gerard Way. I'll I'll throw his uh, picture up there. And he started doing this comic book and then it got picked up as as a Netflix series. And so the music in it is really cool. And I I played Dance 
in the Moonlight, one of the, the epic scenes from the first season features that song. And it's uh, just the, the way he uses music throughout this series. It's really creative. I was trying to explain it to somebody the other day. They're like, what is this Umbrella Academy thing? I was like explaining it. And they're like, it's kind of like X-Men. And I was like, yeah, but like weirder than X-Men. <laughs> it's like quirkier and kind of it's got a kind of a weird quirky goofy x-men in a way um but also darker in somehow um so they've had they've had uh two net two seasons one in 2019 and then one in 2020 and it's just uh it's just a a cool show so what we're going to do here we're going to talk about kind of what we love and, and don't love artistically and then we'll get kind of into some of the spiritual uh themes of it sound good absolutely Cool. So what do you love about this show? When I, when I reached out to you about being in on this show, you said, this is one of the topics you wanted to talk about. So what do you love about this show? Well, you like, you sent me the list and it's, I, I really appreciate this being the first one where it hasn't been about music. I mm-hmm. oftentimes feel like the part of my brain that appreciates the music in the way a lot of other people do doesn't work. Like mm-hmm. I love lyrics and I could, I love music. I'm not, but like when somebody's like, what's your favorite song? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like I just, it's not anything that it's just me, but like, um, you know, shows and comic books and other stuff like that uh, are loving. I actually love that this is a story of a comic book that became a, a show for a number of reasons. I remember slinking down in the stacks at Borders, which uh, you may people might not even know what I it remember is anymore. Borders, yeah, this, uh-huh. right, like a Barnes and Noble, um, uh, and pulling this off the shelf while I was waiting for my mom to pick me up once in high school and reading through the first bound graphic novel series of the umbrella Academy and thought this is a really interesting thing. Um, it was, it was really phenomenal. I didn't make it through the entire thing. I remember when the the second series dropped because it wasn't like one after the other, there was a Mm -hmm. bit of a pause. Um, and it's been really, it's kind of cool to see for me always how somebody takes one medium and translates it into another one. That's always something that's deeply exciting to me. So it was a, it's a property that I loved. I thought it was mm-hmm. really creative. I love the dark gritty feel of like uh, what I would typically in the, in the like comic book world is referred to as street level superheroes, mm-hmm. um, which definitely is where umbrella Academy falls. They, they within their world are these incredibly powerful individuals, but in a lot of other comic book universes would be very minorly powerful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they are, um, they're not necessarily these huge world bending, world breaking powers until they are sometimes. Yeah, and so uh, um, I just love that story. And I love the interplay of complex family dynamics. My, some of my favorite stuff from some of other um, scenes. Like I never was really one to gravitate towards like Superman, mm-hmm. um, even Batman with kind of his like darker feel mm-hmm. um, never was really a superhero that attracted me, but yeah. like green arrow um who has a little bit more complexity in a lot of his relationships um and green lantern not just not nothing to do with the color green it's just where it is where Mm -hmm. creativity is a huge capacity of how they execute their powers and their abilities are actually things that really always like i was super excited about i love spider-man as a kid um because even though he's this big superhero in the city he's not incredibly powerful compared to a lot of the people he faces and so watching the the interplay between these really broken human beings um because they all are they're all yeah. they all have all these family wounds so if you're mm-hmm. reading it as a teenager for the first time there's this immediate attraction to a character um in the story whichever one it is um and you know this this ability to say even these small powers can be used in some incredibly dynamic and creative ways yeah. i also love that they don't over explain try to over explain how any of these powers work <laughs> or reduce them to laser beams that just shoot out of them. yeah like they don't fall into either either side of that and mm-hmm. uh, and i really love that 
Yeah, it's 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 really just it's unlike a lot of the other comic book stuff like Marvel, uh, like the Avengers, the big Marvel movies and uh, in X-Men, which is kind of what I, I grew up with. And uh, I never read these these comics, but I love the show. It took me a little while to get into the show. I had several friends that were like, you got to watch Umbrella Academy. Season two is coming out. You got to you got to watch it. And my wife and I were watching the first couple episodes and it seemed a little bit slow. Like I felt like the first few episodes, they could have trimmed like 10 minutes off at of each one. But and I, I texted my friend. I was like, does this does this pick up? Does it do they? Did he explain a little bit more? He's just wait for it, wait for it. It's a bit of a slow burn. And I'm so glad I did like just the pacing and the characters and just the way that it's shot is really artistic. And like I said, the music and, and just, it's really artfully creatively done. It's kind of got this steampunk aesthetic in places. Um, and again, the music and it's just weird and zany. And it's got, it's got a, a little kid who's actually an old man. And then it's got right. these, you know, sometimes you, you get visions of them when they're young and then visions of them when they're older. So it's, it's just really it's it's really neat. By the way, we're going to have a bunch of spoilers. So if you haven't watched seasons one and season two before watching this, uh, you might want to, you know, save this for later and come back to it because we're going to talk about um, spoilers. Um, is yeah, there anything? The retro futuristic aesthetic, though, yes. is like on uh-huh. the charts, like that dark, heavy feel. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, it's really funny whenever you try to compare it to people about other things they've seen. One of the one of the best things that it actually compares to is some like the 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 incredibles like mm. uh the way that they take very futuristic concepts but make them look very old and very dated yeah uh, it's the same thing but it's way more academic and way more like dark than that feel but mm. it's really funny when you try to just define and nail down that aesthetic for people yeah um how how much i think for a lot of us that look back at like something that feels like classic 1950s americana mm-hmm. but totally twisted and pushed into the future yeah. is always uh-huh. always super enjoyable yeah it's very cool it's very cool. Well, let's for uh, people that haven't watched it, or maybe people who have, let's just just roll through the characters, and I'll put the, the pictures up there. So, uh, there's seven uh, main characters in the Umbrella Academy, and they are they're all born on the same day, and they're the the weird thing is their mothers weren't pregnant at the beginning of the day, and they just all of a sudden are pregnant and are giving birth all of a sudden, and this happened like all over the world to a bunch of kids, and this guy named Reginald Hardgreaves gets seven of these kids and adopts them, and I think he actually buys them from their from their parents and raises them as realizes they have powers and raises them as kind of this X-Men superhero force. He's kind of a twisted Charles Xavier type who's not nearly as, uh, nurturing. <laughs> and, uh, and then he numbers them one through seven and he always refers to them by their numbers. And in, in the show, they don't really have, um, comic book names, but these, these names are from the comics. So the real name, the first guy's real name is Luther. He's number one. In the comics, they call him space boy. Um, Diego number two in the comics, they call him the Kraken. Um, so, and I'll, I'll tell you there, uh, superpowers too. And Luther is super, super strong. Um, and at one point gets spliced with a gorilla. Uh, so he's, he's like big and hairy and, and huge and strong like that. Diego has like perfect aim with, with, uh, daggers and knives and he can throw stuff and kind of make them bend and, uh, and go wherever he wants. Uh, Allison number three, the rumor, she can control people's minds by saying, I heard a rumor that you, you know, punched yourself in the face and the person has to punch themselves in the face. And so she's got a lot of power there. Kind of like a uh, Kilgrave from Jessica Jones. If you've watched that, uh, Klaus number four, the seance, he can communicate with the dead. He can see dead people and, and, and talk to them. And he's still kind of discovering his powers in the show. A five who's my personal favorite. I love five. They just call him the boy and he doesn't, 
like you never learn his real name, at least not in the TV show. Um, but he's actually, he can time jump and space jump. So he jumps into the future, but he's still trapped in like his 13 year old body. So he's like a 50 year old man. He's the oldest of them, but they treat a lot of times they treat him like a little kid because he still looks like a little kid. And the actor that plays him is just amazing. Like he's, he's so good. I could, I could watch him all day. Um, Ben number six, the horror, he has kind of these weird spirit tentacles that come out and like grab people. Um, and he dies fairly early on, but he's still in the show because Klaus, who can communicate with the dead, uh, can, has him with him and their powers kind of interact in a weird way. And then number seven, Vanya, the white violin who has no powers at first. And it's kind of a big thing when she develops powers and turns out to be, uh, the most powerful of them all. But it turns out their father who adopted them, uh, Reginald Hardgreaves had actually suppressed her powers. And so it's a big thing when she discovers them, uh, later on. So I want to just kind of talk through, I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but we'll, we'll see how many we can get to is, um, let's just talk about these characters kind of because each of them has kind of things that they struggle with in ways that they're broken, but also like really beautiful things um, about them. So uh, Tony, is there a, a character that you just love that you want to, you want to talk about first? Um, so I love, I love five. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like you mentioned, he's, he's just, a, I think the, one of the most enjoyable characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also the most unique, like you mentioned, we never learn his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't have a superhero name. Uh, the, even, even in the, like the, the show, basically they've gone through being public superheroes. So a lot of their names are drawn from what people in the public called them. Mm-hmm. Their number is what Hargreaves always referred to them. And their name is actually a point of self-chosen identity, um, mm-hmm. which actually makes five overly kind of, interesting the character to start on because he doesn't ever have pick a name like he's just five the entire time he's referred to as the boy by everybody but even as he goes through because like he grows up um like we see this in an alternate timeline as this interesting uh cross time assassin right Mm -hmm. like he's this incredibly gifted and skilled uh individual who can who can time travel, but ends up in all kinds of trouble for it. He's, he's the worst at controlling his power, but has one of the potentially most world breaking powers, but he never, he never dissociates. And this is really interesting to me, the identity he's given by his father, even as flawed as his father is Mm -hmm. from being his core identity. Like he never, like the rest of them, feels the need to push who he is off onto someone else. Now he also opens up as the least mentally stable (laughs) of all, (laughs) of all of the characters, except for Klaus potentially. Right. Uh Um, And so he's a really interesting and fascinating character who we also see trying to navigate their world Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways, constantly through a middle schooler's perspective. (laughs) Um, But also then later in the series through a middle schooler who also happens to be like a 65 year old. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so um, as somebody who loves middle school ministry, as somebody who that was of my heart and a lot of what I love, like uh, there's something about about five that is just, I think, deeply endearing as him being the most capable individual. Uh-huh. I'm sure the one who's typically the most aware of what's happening, mm-hmm. um, but also the least able to get anyone to take him seriously. <laughs> Which for me, like as somebody, like I said, with a background in middle school ministry, just kind of uh, kind of resonates. So uh, five is five is absolutely uh, tops for me also too. Mm-hmm. I also just love good dialogue and mm-hmm. five has some of the best dialogue. Yeah, he um, does. He does. Like um, his, his language use is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like as a middle schooler, I felt like I was the only one that knew what was going on, even though <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> so. That's what I'm saying. Like, it, and, and I think it is really interesting. Like, there is the the perception that comes with the youth that sometimes is actually more grounded in reality because it's mm-hmm. it's not formed as well, and therefore yeah. it takes in a whole lot more. Uh, and there's there's honesty and truth that it picks up. 
that an older perspective will just gloss right over. That's why mm-hmm. middle school students are so keen to like notice the one thing you didn't think about in, uh-huh. in a perfectly prepared talk or whatever. Yeah whatever else it might be. Um, but I think we can all resonate with being that really frustrated mm-hmm. teenager. The best thing about five is he's never blaming. I mean, as much as he, he, he does directly blame people when things are their fault, sometimes mm-hmm. even they're not, he doesn't place a lot of false blame on other people, which I think every single other character in the show is looking for someone else to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And five is actually looking to take control and solve things himself. Now, maybe sometimes he should release a little bit of that. Um, but I, he is the most active mm-hmm. and proactive individual yes. in the entire family yeah. who's not seeking to force other people into something mm-hmm. also, too. So in a, in a lot of ways, Five is the truest um, of all the characters. And that's mm-hmm. actually, I think, one of the things that I, I love the most about him is he just is who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, he, is he presents himself as being... Um, and he takes responsibility for the pathway of action that he wants to see happen mm-hmm. and focuses on, on strongly executing in that direction. Um, and so I think compared to a lot of the other characters that might frustrate me who want to wallow, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's absolutely who five is. And that's one of the things that makes him different than everybody else. Yeah. So with five, I, 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 I love everything you just said. And two things that it makes me think of are, are one he, you're right here that he is the most proactive and in sometimes almost, almost to a fault. And I, I think about in my own life and in the life of, of, of my friends, sometimes there can, I, I think when, when you're trying to live the life of faith, there's such a thing as like kind of being almost lackadaisically trusting in God. Like it's not authentic trust in God, but it's just kind of, Oh, God will take care of it. And, and that is almost an excuse for some people to, not be proactive or just be like, Oh God, I'll take care of it. Um, but then there's a, and there's a danger in that, but there's a danger on the other side where we don't trust God enough. And we feel like everything depends on us. And if I don't do it, then it's not going to happen. And I can't, I can't trust this other person to do it. Cause they're, they're not trustworthy. And if I, and, and I see five kind of obsessing with that, you know, and there's, there's not really any, um, explicit reference to, to faith in that. But as, as I'm thinking about, uh, five and where I see him in, in myself is sometimes I want to kind of micromanage. Sometimes I want to have control over everything and, and, and kind of plan everything out. And his whole thing is he's trying to change the future, this thing that seems almost inevitable. And he's trying to, trying to figure out how it works. And, uh, sometimes even in my prayer life, I'm like, all right, God, I pray for this thing. Cause if this thing happens, then that thing happens. And if that thing happens yeah. and that thing happens rather than just saying, God, here's my heart and I trust you with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I do think five, and this probably comes from him. Him, he avoids basically a lot of the the late teenage trauma of his family's fallout. Mm, yeah, while engaging in a completely different type of trauma. <laughs> yeah, lots own. of other trauma. Being on his own, he actually has faith that his family can do mm. something good. That he and his siblings can accomplish certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, he has. Again, one of the most powerful abilities, potentially the most powerful. We could get into weird power arguments if we want to, but mm-hmm. I don't think we do. Yeah. Um, the uh, but he is he is the least capable of using it in any sort of effective uh, manner on a meta scale. Like small things, moving around a room, totally easy. Mm-hmm. Traveling through time is a huge plot point. His inability mm-hmm. to do so well mm-hmm. is a major element of this, and um, it's it's really kind of just cool to see his his belief in his siblings kind of be the only thing that sometimes even moves them forward and when it doesn't work he's willing to go basically create create a problem or try to solve a mm-hmm. problem um that dr- ends up drawing them into where they need to be so he's mm-hmm. absolutely i think the 
the pushing force behind the most most of what happens yeah. in Umbrella Academy. Mm-hmm. So I agree. Um, uh, I want to talk about um, Luther. I, I kind I think Luther is, and I want to talk about because he's kind of the character. One, I, I kind of relate to him the most, but I also think he's my least favorite <laughs> of all the seven. Um, I, think it's, I think that's pretty common for characters we see a lot of the time. Like, we really uh-huh. love them. There's ones we love we want to be like. The ones mm-hmm. we don't like we see ourselves in a lot of the time. Yeah. So he's number one. He's supposed to kind of be the leader. And he very much wants to please his father. You know, the, he he's he wants to to go on. He's When everyone else leaves, he's the one who stays and keeps doing Umbrella Academy missions. Um, but then once he realizes that his father, you know, like he, his, he, his father like sent him to the moon to send back samples. And then he realized that the samples weren't even being used for anything. His father just thought he needed a purpose or something like that. And so, um, he's totally disillusioned and he kind of mopes around a lot, kind of looking for his purpose after that ends up working as a bodyguard for a gangster. And, um, I don't know. I see so many people and I see this within myself is, there's somebody that you want to make proud. There's somebody that you want to please. And maybe it's your father or maybe it's a a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or maybe it's, you don't even know who, um, you know, a certain clique you want to be a part of, but I I just see some, he's just searching for that approval, that approval, that approval. And I know, I know for me, that's been a major struggle through a lot of my life is, uh, even when I'm doing the right thing, a lot of times I'm not doing it for the right reason. (laughs) I'm doing it because I think it's going to gain me some sort of approval. And I, I see that so much in Luther. Um, and I think the other interesting thing, Luther is somebody who desperately wants to be loved. Like we mm. see that in, uh, we see that obviously with, with, with Hargreaves, his father, we see that with, uh, with his sister. And again, I remind people, they're not, they're not biologically related siblings. Yeah. Uh-huh. Even though it's weird because they did grow up in the same household. Um, yeah. uh, so we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, but there, there's a, there's a, there's a desire for a relationship there. I even think with, uh, with Diego, with number two, mm-hmm. a lot of their, a lot of their fight back and forth is a desire for Diego's admiration. Yeah. Um, and from Diego, the same thing from, from Luther, mm-hmm. um, this, this kind of fraternal rivalry that, yeah. that oftentimes exceeds the bounds of fraternity mm-hmm. is, is Luther and Diego looking for mutual respect, love and admiration yes. mm-hmm. from each other. But I think Luther ultimately embodies I'm I'm a I'm somebody who wants to be loved mm-hmm. but feels totally unlovable. Yeah. Um, especially post post his transformation. Um mm-hmm. I, the thing I hate the most about the sh- the show version of Luther is how badly they did his body in the first season. That is 100% <laughs> what I love the least about it. Um they the the amount of effort they put into making him have an ape body mm-hmm. is so low and so bad in the first. Season. It does. Second it season. looks kind of like he's wear. It looks like he's wearing styrofoam. Kind of. Yeah, like he. They just have him in a bulky suit a lot of the time to uh-huh. not have to pay money for stuff. I guess I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but even that is done very, very poorly. Mm-hmm. And so it's just. Uh, but he feels unlovable because of abandonment issues at mm-hmm. first, but then this external transformation that mirrors this internal feeling of unlovability. Yeah. Um, becomes this thing that that causes him to totally self-isolate to desire mm-hmm. uh and in, in the comic books there's a little bit of an implication not only that he's put on the moon and left there when he realizes it's fake he just stays there because oh. it is better to have a purpose and he mm-hmm. just wants not wow. and he doesn't want to, have to be rejected by anybody again like there's some really like insane depth to luther mm-hmm. that i feel like we miss in the show a lot man well and and how often do people stick with something long after they know it's worthwhile just because they're afraid to try something new. And that can, I know I've done that in relationships where it's like this relationship really it's, I, I should be done with this, but 
it's hard to start over or a, a, a job. You know, there's so many situations where y- you know in your heart that this is not good for you anymore, but you persist in it right. just because it's it's scary to start over. And right. people and, get and trapped yeah. in that. How many organizations get trapped in doing something they know doesn't impact yes. what they're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. but continue to do it because it's it's just what they've always done. And if we tried something new, what if it didn't work? Yeah. Um, how many parishes? You know, how many churches? I think Luther basically is, we see as a very, like he never confronts a lot of that stuff. And I actually don't even think by season two, like mm-hmm. that he's really confronted most of it. Um, he's he's acknowledged most of his desires, but he hasn't actually taken the active step mm-hmm. to say, am I going to actually do something about him? The only time we see him do that, um, and this is absolutely a spoiler uh, for a really cool scene in the movie. So skip the next 30 seconds if you want to. <laughs> the only time we see him do that in the first season gets ripped back in time and erased <laughs> immediately after it happens. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it's, in- it's incredibly tragic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Diego kind of has a little bit of that middle child syndrome where he, he wants to be the leader. He wants to be what Luther is or is what Luther is trying to be. And there absolutely he's, he's fighting for approval. Um, and whereas, uh, Luther is looking for it from a father figure. Diego is looking for it from his mother. And their mother is like an android uh, who just takes care of them. And, and he has this special relationship with the mother. But the, the mother is like not quite like a, it's not like data from Star Trek where she's not, she doesn't pass the Turing test. If you know what that is, like she, she doesn't quite have like consciousness in the way that a, the, a human does, it seems, at least not in the, right. in the, in the movie. It's, it's way more Stepford wife than it is anything else. Yes, right? exactly. The, they haven't passed the uncanny Valley. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's this, again, this, this 1950s kind of emoted mom. We find out later on the, the origin of who this mother is. And, and actually mm-hmm. the, the way it works in the, in the comic books is a little bit different, um, which is one thing I love. I love continually in this series, how, they tell kind of the same core story between mm-hmm. both, but they don't stick to the same beats at all, which I think yeah, when you switch, they switch beats, it up. You have to be okay with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but mom is such an, such an interesting character because she is designed to be the fully nurturing ultra maternal, like idealized version of a mother who is ultimately mm-hmm. also just artificial. Like yeah. does not, does not exist as an entity other than whatever emotional energy these children have put into her. Mm, and so wow. um, it's, it's, it's absolutely like crazy to to kind of see some of the reality of, of how they do that. But yeah, I, I actually really like Diego. Um, again, he's, he's a more active character. Um, he wants to see things do it. He's an interesting, like mix between some of the things that I love about the other siblings, um, mm. but also ultimately isn't as, isn't as physically capable, isn't as mentally capable, mm-hmm. like constantly finds himself of being in this, this place of being number two and being more of a yeah. jack of all trades mm-hmm. type of character. Um, he's definitely got the spy assassin vibe going mm-hmm. on. And, uh, but, but again, for him, he doesn't see a lot of self-worth. Like yeah. Luther has self-loathing, mm-hmm. but sees, va- sees value in his strength. Mm-hmm. Like Diego doesn't see that anything he does is good enough yeah. compared to anybody else, but wants to be, honored and respected and Mm. revered um as if he was Mm. um and so it's just one of those interesting things um i i it's it's also an interesting ploy like there is a very much a prodigal son reality to diego like if i had to guess who was the first person to be like i'm gone i'm Mm -hmm. out of here like it was diego like 100 like you know uh just the restlessness of his nature Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely screams that to me. I, I really loved the romance between him and Lila. I think her name is the handler's daughter. There's big spoilers for season two. Um, and I, at the end, he like lets her go and they're like, why'd you let her go? And he's like, cause I love her. And I was like, yes, I knew he really loved her. And I like, I hope that something happens there. I just, I, 
Yeah. And cause especially cause, um, the, the police officer that he was in love with in the first season ended up getting murdered. Um, and he's had his, his, this kind of broken relationship with his Android non-human mother. And then his girlfriend got murdered or his ex-girlfriend got murdered. And then, uh, Lila, he has this kind of back and forth relationship with, and I, I just see him longing for this like healthy female rela- relationship with a female. And, uh, it keeps just being just out of reach. So I really hope he and Lila can have, have something healthy, although they're both kind of messed up in crazy ways. So I'm sure it'll have some dysfunction in it, but I, I have, I have great hope for Diego. <laughs> and I love that. Cause we don't know, like that's we don't not, know. that character mm-hmm. is nowhere in the comics. Like we have no idea what's going to happen with any of that. And I love it. Uh, let's talk about Allison. Uh, so her, she's got the mind control ability and she's kind of, when we first meet her in the show, she's sworn it off because she's abused it. She used it on her, her child to like, you know, get her child to sleep. She's like, I heard a rumor that you went to sleep. And in, as I'm watching this, my, my wife and I both have two young children who are not very good at sleeping. And <laughs> we like looked at each other and we're like, we would probably totally like, do yeah, that. We would we would have made bad choices if we had this power. Yeah, I think uh-huh. I think on on surface level, Allison has the most powerful ability, mm-hmm. right? Like it yeah. seems the most evidently powerful because it's also it's not just the convincing nature of you have to do it. Because if we look at things like okay, go to sleep. Well, there's a level of physiological control. We also see later on her tell somebody that she heard their heads exploded mm-hmm. and then their heads explode. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's her ability to warp reality yeah. based on her force of will which is like insane and we i we see the way this is abused by by her father with mm-hmm. one of her siblings yep. and then she mirrors that with her own child later on and that mm-hmm. breaks her from this even as she comes back to her powers we see her then lose them for a period of time due to an injury yeah, also uh-huh. there's, there's this kind of constant back and forth which is which is also great writing because it never feels super contrived because mm-hmm. A great solution to a lot of problems would be we'll just have Allison tell them that it's different than it mm-hmm. is, and, and yeah. that solves the problem. Uh-huh. Um, and her inability to do that, or her choice to not do that, uh, creates good dramatic tension as a reason to not. Um, no, I love I love Allison. This is when we said that, that her and Luther, um, there's there's a, a romantic relationship there that would kind of existed as they were kids was a level of flirting as they were teens is kind of mutually unacknowledged in the show until they get to be a little bit older, even though there's, there's a little bit of, of, of uh, acknowledgement about it, I guess, in those teen, those teen years. Um, it's a really interesting dynamic that they kind of explore in this. Um, the We're actually going right now with a bunch of men through a, uh, a men's pr- thing that we do every year called the Nazarite challenge. So it's mm-hmm. like a spiritual no shave November thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, we just broke them into uh, a quote from the book of songs, right. That talks about the primary way that we love any woman is as a sister. Mm. And for a lot of guys in that group, especially married guys, the question is like, you know, for, for single men, do you see other women as sisters first, or do you see them only as objects yeah. uh, for married yeah. men? Do you see your wife as a sister in Christ? Do you understand mm. how to love them? And then for priests, what does it mean for you to be, you know, because it's all dependent on the vocation. What does it mean for you to love the women in your parish as a sister? Like yeah. how is that being honored as well as being their spiritual father? So it is overwhelmingly, most men are like, that's really hard. Yeah. Like, this is the hardest question you guys have asked. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know what that means. And so there, I don't think there's any intent to explore that mm-hmm. question in, in the creation of this relationship. Um, but I do think it's good for us to consider, like, there are certain ways that we love a sibling or that we love a friend 
that we oftentimes exempt from our romantic relationships that I think yeah. at the core are actually supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, the, the mutual concern for one another, the, the, the fraternal or familial concern that we're supposed to have for any woman that we love. Um, I actually think there's a way in which that's modeled uh, in Luther and Allison's relationship and mm -hmm. in an ultra bizarre yeah. like way. <laughs> I, think, I think it draws our attention back to something. Yeah. Um, that that can cause us to question or say this is hard that our modern society just doesn't understand anymore mm -hmm. um yeah there's def there's definitely kind of this splintering of of the different types of love in christianity we talk a lot about the four different types of love there's there's eros the love of of, of passion and uh storge the the love of family and philia the love of friendship and then agape the self-sacrificial love of god and we often see a splintering of that in society where you know i have i have a, a hookup buddy or an f buddy or you know where it's just all physical but then i have like my friend where it's like oh we're just friends Whereas really like a healthy relationship, like a, a healthy, um, like marital romantic relationship has that, has a good friendship. And ultimately if you're going to form a life together, you have to have that kind of brotherly sisterly thing too. And it has right. to be integrated and it, it all comes back to the self-sacrificial love, that virtue, that caritas charity that you, that you, um, you don't just feel for one another, but you put into action for one another. Um, and it can't, you know, real love doesn't survive on emotions. Real love doesn't survive, survive just on desire. Desire goes up and down all over the place in any relationship. Um, and what's going to sustain you and keep, and, and keep that desire going through the ups and downs and, and keep the real love going through the ups and downs is that love of, of sacrifice. Um, so I, I love what you said. Yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be integrated. And that's, that's what's so damaging of when we see sex and romance as like, Oh, this other thing. And it's not about having a healthy relationship. And then when people do try to have a healthy marriage because they've treated sex as this other thing, that's something that's just for fun or it's, Oh, just for the desire or oh, just for the feelings I get, then they have a really hard time integrating. It takes a lot of healing. It takes a lot of, um, sometimes work in therapy and that sort of thing, work with your spouse. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think we see the mixture of a lot of the most toxic elements of misunderstood love mm. in the relationship between Allison and Luther. But I, I also, like, Allison is a great character in her own right. She's mm -hmm. not just Luther's romantic interest. Yeah. Um, again, I oh, think yeah. her power is is potentially the the strongest. But also, I I love what they do because it, in the comic books, the character is not is not black. So it's mm -hmm. not the race conversation is not an element of mm. of the. Comic books and, and again I, it wouldn't be based on some of when it was being written how it was being written um however the the way that they place it in the show when they go back to 1960s dallas it's a, mm -hmm. i grew up in dallas right i grew yeah. up in north dallas um i have friends who grew up in south dallas mm -hmm. and who and it was crazy watching it um like i lived with one of them for a year he's an older guy named named marty i lived with him and his wife named tony for for a couple of years um and they they he like he grew up in South Dallas and he would have been growing up during the time the show is set, which wow. is during a lot of racial tensions because yeah. South Dallas was the black community yeah. when I was growing up, um, but also more so in previous years. Uh, it had diversified a lot, huge Hispanic influence, Anglo influence had moved into the community. Things were still, you know, there were still different neighborhoods that were were certainly not um, like integrated, not through anything other than this is families that have lived here for forever and this is where people live. Um, but you would go through Hispanic communities, black communities, white communities going through South Dallas. Historically, that was the black neighborhood of the city. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so what they do to position her in the middle of that conversation um, around so racial cool. tensions, uh in the second season is unique to the show and is, I think, beautifully well implemented. Mm-hmm. It draws a lot of the internal tensions um, of of some of the hopes that people had during that time about mm-hmm the what the Kennedys might be bringing as far as change to our nation may have implied um, and the need to say how do we cooperate <laughs> with the powers of our government and yeah. then how do we challenge back because this is our experience that we need to own and I, I don't think there's a person in our country right now who shouldn't be able to in some way shape or form associate with that ideal of yeah. how do I deal with what should the government be doing and what do I as an individual need to do to speak mm-hmm. out on my own behalf yeah. regardless of where you fall on the divide yeah. it should be probably be a tension in your life right now. Um, and I think the way they do that specifically around the conversation of race is mm. absolutely phenomenally done um, within within the show. And it's, it's interesting because Allison is so powerful and there's such an interesting divide in this show because for five, who, as you said, is one of the most proactive, um, a lot of times for him, it's the end justify the means. If I can get my, if I can protect my family and I can prevent this apocalypse, sure, I'll kill off a whole room of, of, of board members for the, um, what do they call it? The company that, that like runs the timeline, uh, the um, agency, the agency. Yeah. Like he kills off the whole agency board of directors. So, you know, it's the ends justify the means is sort of morality. Whereas with Allison, she's like, n- even though she's working for this super noble cause of civil rights and she's in the middle of it and she could use her power to change this issue. She recognizes that like, even if I use this a little bit, it's still wrong. Not only because of the temptation to use it more, but because I am like taking away another person's free will. And so she kind of has this, this, um, this rule for herself that she's not going to use it. And so it's very interesting between her and fives, you almost have these two different moralities and, and uh, fives is very utilitarian. The ends justify the means. And Allison is, is more just kind of, you know, if it's wrong, it, it's, it's wrong. And it's a, it's a betrayal. Even if I use it just a little bit, even if I use it for, for something good. And I, I just love the, that, that thematic. And you know, if we, got into, if you took a, a moral theology class, those are things that you would talk about is do the ends justify the means and how, how can we know something is wrong even without, um, you know, independent of the consequences or, or the circumstances. And when is something intrinsically wrong? Um, it, it almost makes me think of Lord of the Rings, you know, Sauron's great power was that he could bend people to his will. Yeah. You know, he could bend entire races to his will and corrupt their hearts. And we see, and that's, that's kind of what the power she has. And you see her, this, she's this fundamentally good person, but she's given this incredible power with this temptation to corruption. Uh, and that's one of Thomas Aquinas's substitutes for God is, is power, right? This temptation to power. So, uh, yeah, I love that. That dynamic just, just before anybody adds us later, which you're welcome to add us about other things, mm-hmm. but it's uh, in the comics that is just called the organization. The organization, okay. given a name, and then it's the Temps Commission right. in the show. The commission, yeah, very good, very good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, who should we talk about next? Um, oh. Let's do Klaus because yeah, he, yeah, he is uh, actually yeah. Let's do Klaus. We'll yeah, let's do Klaus. Through. I did um, want to talk about Klaus. So Klaus, uh, Klaus, I love Klaus. Is I love the actor who does Klaus. He was in a, another horrible uh, <laughs> so superhero show called Misfits that I uh-huh. that I absolutely <laughs> adored. Um, and <laughs> he is somebody again who's reluctant to use his power, mm-hmm. who um, uses drugs as a numbing agent to deal with the fact that he constantly sees dead people mm-hmm. around him all the time who are trying to get him to help. Yeah. Um, it does let him communicate with his brother Ben um, and interact with him. Um, but um, I love Klaus. I love Klaus because I, I see a lot of 
I think Klaus is an an emotionally weak character to start off, but he actually I think is potentially the most dynamic character as far mm-hmm. as the character growth we see in the first two seasons. Yeah, um, of him becoming really who he's intended to be in a more intentional way, mm-hmm. um, and working through a lot of his own stuff on of his own volition, of his own desire to do so, and but almost never for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, like Klaus is not. Class is not a good character. Class is not a redeeming character. He is a sweet character, though. Mm-hmm. Like, he is somebody who literally just wants people to get along better yeah. and doesn't want to be bothered by the dead constantly. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of primary motivations. Um, but he's unwilling to do the hard work a lot of the time mm-hmm. because of that. What what Klaus reminds me of is I've had several friends through the years that have struggled either with chronic pain or addiction or or some sort of disability or or some combination of of the three. And I think he really brings to life on screen a way that you don't often see in in popular media. What is like for somebody who is just plagued with this this pain? Constantly. One of, one of my best friends in college, she had a, a, a jaw disorder where, you know, she had to have her jaw surgically broken and wired shut and she was on a liquid diet for a while. She was almost on these muscle relaxers and super holy, awesome young woman. Um, but it was such a cross for her to bury and most, most for her to carry. And most people didn't even realize it most of the time, but she'd be chewing or talking you just hear her jaw pop and you know, she was in so much pain and just that has a real, you know, I, and I'm, I'm like such a wimp, you know, if I got something on my fingernail from playing too much guitar, like it distracts me all day long that I have this little paper cut or something, or I, I skin my knee and like just how susceptible our, our personalities are to, uh, the, the pain and discomfort of life. And it, I just, I just see in Klaus, um, you see him sometimes deal in, in, in healthy ways with this, uh, this pain that he always has. And other times you see him escaping into, into unhealthy ways. Um, and it's like, you, you can't really blame him because, you know, if I was plagued with seeing dead people and hearing their stories of how they died or were murdered all the time, I might seek escape too. Um, yeah. so I just, I, I see in Klaus so many, like little bits of, of people that I've known who have, who have struggled with these kind of chronic illnesses in a way. Right. And um, we see, we see Klaus, we see Klaus kind of get thrown into initially like mental and emotional health issues. Mm-hmm. That's originally what he's dealing with. Um, and then we, we see him strongly dealing with PTSD to do mm-hmm. a, a time, a time travel uh, mishap. Then we also see him like start a cult at one point in time that actually becomes massively influential in the second season, which is a super enjoyable. So way to do funny. It. Yeah. But we also see what pulls Klaus out of being this hedonistic because he is a hedonist Mm -hmm. um, without a doubt, but, but weaker version of himself again is love. And it it starts out as Eros. um, And it's, it certainly isn't like necessarily an order, like, Hey, I intentionally want to love somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, But due to some of the time travel things, he has the opportunity to save somebody he loves uh, later on in the show before they die. And we actually see that push Klaus into a desire to be a better version of himself, to care Mm -hmm. for somebody to sacrifice for another, to do what's right for another person, mm-hmm. even if it potentially ruins his opportunities for a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that being a major driving force in, in who Klaus becomes and the dynamic shift we see from him at the end. Yeah. And so it's a really, it's a really interesting theme that, that just kind of pops in, yeah. in the, in the second half of the the second season really mm-hmm. strongly again, is this, this love that's drawing him forward. And it, it's, it, it, again, it would be from a, from a church standpoint, a really complex relationship to try to talk about in it a lot of be. detail, but I yeah. do love that core aspect of, of, 
of that the fact that his concern for another mm-hmm. is really what's drawing him out. It's not it's not the eros. It's not the it's not the story. It's that it's that agape desire to sacrifice yes. um, for someone else that moves him back into becoming a a clean, sober, better version of himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's to make himself better, not just for that person, but because he knows he needs to be better to help that person. Like yeah. it's still an individualized choice. Um, it, I, I love that. I, I love that too. And I, I think you also see it some in his relationship with Ben because Ben is dead, but he's still part of the show because Klaus can see him and their relationship is so, uh, it reminds me of some sibling relationships. I know where, where one of the sibling has, has a huge burden and struggles really hard. And the other, the other sibling is trying to love them through all the, all the healthy and unhealthy ways that they're dealing with that. And, uh, you know, Ben is kind of, kind of hat. Well, we learn at the end, he doesn't have to be with Klaus that he, he wasn't ready to, to, to die and go on to the right. next life, whatever that means in this show. Um, but I, I love the relationship with him and Ben and Ben is so sacrificial and just in, in, in walking with Klaus and sometimes letting Klaus experience the, the consequences of his actions and helping him to see like, look, if you're going to act this way, this is what's going to happen, but other times really helping him and encouraging him. And, um, so I, I love the, the brotherhood between Ben and Klaus. It just, yeah. and, and I'm, ex- I'm excited to see now that in the second, it, it, they tease that in the third season, Ben's going to have kind of a bigger role. I'm excited to see yeah. what they do with his character. So, so the, the, so the Ben, Ben, it, it, is one of the characters we know the least about um, on on either one, right? He, mm-hmm. we know that he was part of whatever the public phase of the Umbrella Academy was because mm-hmm. he's got a name. Um, we know he died. It's never addressed how he died. Yeah, it say how he In died. the comic books, it highly leans towards suicide mm. as as how he he died. Mm. Um, so we we can actually start to ask the question of does his concern for Klaus stem from a feeling of I abandoned my brother mm-hmm. uh, like, and now I want to be with him yeah. because I shouldn't have, right? Like a, a sense of regret uh, yeah. around that action. But it's it's unclear even in the comic books if that is mm-hmm. the case. Um, his actual power, because everybody's like, what is his power? Is it just shooting tentacles out of his body? <laughs> Ben's body is a portal to a hell dimension, essentially. Like, so whenever we see those tentacles and stuff coming out of him, that is him essentially summoning demonic energy wow. to like, to rip things around. Now, that's that's all comic book, right? So whether that's mm-hmm. actually the case in the thing, it's mm-hmm. also a, an incredibly unpleasant sounding <laughs> like power to have. Yeah. Um, uh, my body can be ripped in half and demon tentacles can shoot out of it. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a super enjoyable power. No, um, not at all. He's he is uh, he is without a doubt the most emotionally stable of the characters, and he's yeah. Dead. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, he he's I think he skips a lot of the family drama as everything falls apart because it's basically like he, he can talk to Klaus, he can hang out around people but he can't do anything so that that level of surrender mm-hmm. around the inability to act directly on things uh, i think is is incredibly powerful and again it's something that in the end of season two we see him overcome that we actually are able to see ben take action at the we had a little bit ahead of this at the end of season one but it becomes a main point in the, at the end of season two ben's ability to act in a way that dramatically impacts the world around him even mm-hmm. when he feels ineffectual or seems ineffectual yeah Um, and a lot of it comes through his willingness to surrender his lack of material control but continually engage his capacity for relational control which i think is a lesson like that pretty much everybody (laughs) could learn from like the only thing he has is his influence on one person Mm -hmm. uh, or a a few people Mm -hmm. um but even within that he's able to to act strongly 
um, and isn't constantly frustrated by, um, though though does ex- express frustration with, yeah. his inability to physically uh, engage in the way he might want mm-hmm. to. And there's a beautiful scene at the end of season two with him and Vanya, and uh, where kind of through Klaus, he's able to reach Vanya when Vanya's like the the government like trips her out on the LSD and her powers are going crazy and that's gonna like end the world and cause the apocalypse. Uh, and Ben meets her and is able to like kind of kind of say you know you are all you're always our sister you are always special and I, I think that's just like a really uh tender moment so talking about vanya i i, I found at sometimes i really didn't like her character and her character was totally lame and other times i was like yes i love vanya <laughs> she's she's so great um you know and she in some ways is the most powerful she can kind of um like bend she can kind of she's she's almost like the dark phoenix in x-men where she's just like so super powerful she might kill the whole world. Um, but she doesn't, her powers were suppressed and she thought she wasn't special for so long. And you see like the weight that that has on her where she's like, she's number seven. She's the last one. She's the one with no powers and everybody else got to go off and save the world. And she's just stuck at home and she's even kind of crappy at the violin. (laughs) And, um, when she finally does come into her powers, there's, there's so much resentment and seeing her grapple with, um, learning to, to forgive and heal and, and come to, to love her family and become a part of her family and be accepted by her family. Um, and see her kind of lash out at her family. Cause she wrote that book that like tell all expose that kind of pissed the rest of her family off. So it's, it's really interesting just to, to see how she reacts to being this black sheep, um, kind of bastard child of the family <laughs> that isn't as yeah. cool as the other ones. So I, um, uh, first of all, I think Ellen page was perfect casting yeah. for this character. Uh-huh. Like I think she does, a lot of what you need to be able to do well mm-hmm. with a character like Vanya, who is going on really a sense though they all are Vanya is discovering what it means to be herself for the first time ever. Yeah. A- an aspect of who she is uh, for all of her history basically has been locked away mm-hmm. and she is discovering not only a power that she has because they, they very much tie the power that she has to her to her confidence and to the essential reality of who she is. And I absolutely love the way that that comes forward. Um, and actually, like I will say, uh, though, though, obviously there's, there's um, a lot of, a lot of misuse, a lot of sense of a lack of control. Uh, this, the way that Vanya comes to life is exactly the way that I see people come to life when they encounter the Holy spirit for the first time. Mm. Um, like when, when they start to really operate in whatever gifting God has given someone um, is the way that someone will come alive in that moment is absolutely the way that we watch Vanya come alive between the first and the second season. Mm-hmm. Um, like at the end of the first season when she's about to explode and destroy the world um, that, that may be, you know, like, um, like there's, there's some saint quotes we could throw <laughs> around there. Like I came to, uh, and Jesus says, I came to set the world on fire and how I wish it was already burning. I don't think that's what Vanya had Destroy the moon. <laughs> right. Like, um, yeah. So, I, so, so that was, I mean, the second season is really about Vanya realizing um, her essential nature. Mm-hmm. And coming to terms with that, and and even sometimes being uh, afraid of that. I I don't know how many people I've I've talked to who some of whom have very subtle gifts. It might be a gift like you have Mike for music, or somebody else. It might be a gift for administration, but in a, mm-hmm. in a in a very miraculous way, their ability to order things, you know. Um, but yeah, I have other friends who have uh, charismatic gifts for healing, yeah, um, wow. and almost all of them, the first time they start exercising this those. It is overwhelming. It is a little bit terrifying for them to pray for somebody and then all of a sudden have their back work, right? Or to to pray uh, for a need to be healed and to physically watch things snap back into place in front of them. Like that's a pretty like mind-blowing thing when it first happens and people 
are oftentimes overwhelmed by that. But as they start to integrate that or understand how they're supposed to operate in those things, um, the level of this is a really weird way to phrase it, the level of becoming that people have a lot of the time, the level of just like entering into who you actually are is 100% the journey that we see uh, Vanya go through in the second season with her own powers. Mm -hmm. And um, even then we see the people, other people trying to abuse, manipulate, overwhelm her, distract her from that. And um, I just think it's such a, it's such a thing to see that, that family, right. And that voice of knowing who you are in relationship uh, with, with Ben being the thing that resets that. Um, I think oftentimes uh, when we get, uh, when we, when we're afraid of basically our, the, the, our own power. And if you're, if you're not like Christian, you're like, well, I'm not going to have you link yours, whatever. That's mm -hmm. fine. Like, the, the amazing abilities that you as a human individual have, oftentimes our brothers and sisters are way better able to see than us and they are yeah. able to speak into that in a really intentional way. And we see that as a thing of resetting. And and contrary to what common culture proposes, not even from a fully Christological standpoint that the faith totally backs us up, but from a philosophical standpoint, I firmly believe that identity is not something we choose, but something that we receive. And the mm. primary way we receive that is in our relationships, right? So mm. I'm first a son, second a brother, right? After that, I become a, a husband and a father. Yeah. Those are those are relationships are all given to me by someone else. And they are the primary things that grant me identity, right? Yeah. I can choose a lot of things about what I like or my, my preferences or other things like that. But my, my core identities are really gifted to me in a relationship. And I love seeing that as a core element of Ben's conversation uh, with Vanya at the end of season two that resets her and allows her mm -hmm. to really kind of fully integrate who she is into the world for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Well, I want to talk just a little bit. We don't have a, a whole lot of time, but uh, I, I wanted one thing that I, I so uh, there's a big reveal at the end of season two spoiler um, that uh, he's like an alien <laughs> and it kind of explains like some of his weirdness and his intelligence and how he seems to always be two steps ahead of everything. And, um, but he reminds me a lot. I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's The Space Trilogy, um, but yeah. the, the last the last book, um, that hideous strength, um, like he's kind of like the bad guy in this where it's kind of like this this intellect unhinged from like any sort of emotion or passion. It's just like straight, straight intellect. And you see how that like just cold calculating reason uh, kind of leads to some some messed up things. And anyway, th so that that that's what he, he reminds me of. Um, did you I have any thoughts? In a, in a comment thread wrote uh, Paralandra, which is the second book. In that's the, my favorite. In the, I love that one. Is fire. Mm -hmm. And the hideous strength, which is the third book, is dumpster fire. Uh, <laughs> it's my least favorite out of the three. Uh, uh, but you're right. You're, I mean, it's a totally spot on call out, the unhinged intellect. Um, he's actually called the Kraken. Uh, in uh in the comic books is his name oh, because right. it's a reference and it's it, it is secretly a reference to the fact that he is this squiddy alien creature okay. um wikipedia but, yeah. lied to me they said number two they said diego was the kraken so he is the kraken yeah and so okay. there you know in, in the in the it's it's a it's a and, well, and i could be wrong okay I, I think i think he if he wasn't called the kraken he had a different name in the um in the comic books um mm -hmm. I'll Google the monocle you Maybe. can you can at me no 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 like the the, the monocle was i know it from the the movie but i think he had he had like an alien name that oh, they, they brought up at okay. some point in time cool. i'm gonna google it um but no i i do the character is incredibly interesting i also just love somebody who's like i'm gonna go around the world and buy a bunch of kids or get a bunch of kids or take mm -hmm. a bunch of kids um the uh the and then form them into something 
um, with no real sense of why they need to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think uh, I, I love how they they started this reveal right now in the series because mm-hmm. it sets us up for season three being able to explore some really intense things. It actually makes me wish because they're 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 again this is the way that season three is being done in the show is different than the comic book. Mm-hmm. The time travel piece is central to the show. It wasn't as central though. It's very evident uh, mm-hmm. to how they tell the narrative in the comic books. So in the comic books. There's just been a secret school the entire time mm. that the woman who mother is based on has been running. Oh, like it's okay. Just, Interesting. It's just a separate school of seven kids that he also controls, uh-huh. but he wasn't running the the woman gotcha. who we see in season two, who is the template for mother, mm. runs. Um, and so um, it's really interesting the way they've done it with a time travel shift and split for this one. I'm super excited to see kind of how we, I think, get to explore who Reginald is a lot more um, uh, for in this in the next season. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right. Well, we're just about out of time, Tony. And a lot of times at the end of an episode, I will ask the guests if they would uh, close us in prayer, kind of reflecting on the themes. Would you be willing to do that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Very good. Um, let's, uh, let's begin just in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Uh, good and gracious God, we come before you and maybe we are people who feel close to you. Uh, maybe we we understand our relationship with you. Uh, maybe we're people who don't believe or don't know that you exist. No matter where we are at, or no matter who we are, help us to understand more clearly in our lives what a good father is. Uh, we all experience wounds. Uh, I know I do from from our earthly fathers. Uh, no matter how intentional or unintentional those wounds might be, uh, they speak to us of a desire for something more, of a lack that we sense in our soul, a need for a love that means something more than we could possibly know. So, Lord, I would ask that it maybe in those lack, in those empty spaces, in those wounds, uh, that we might realize that desire for something more speaks of who you are. Uh, that we might allow our brothers and sisters, those around us, to use their gifts to build us up, to help us see ourselves. And the Lord, above all things, that love might draw us forward, that it might draw us into more. Help us to, to become uh, the best versions of ourselves, by which I mean the individuals we were created to be, that you've wired into our hearts that Lord, we fully choose when we choose you. We ask all this through the blessing of your son. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tony, for being here. Tony, tell the beautiful people where they can find you. Oh, I'm at Tony Vicinda um, on pretty much any social media platform. I'm an elder millennial, which means that I live on Facebook and I visit other social media platforms. Me too. <laughs> uh, on but at, at Tony Vicinda on anything, you can find Catholic Bomb Co. at Catholic Bomb Co. Or Plus One stuff, all the tabletop nerdy stuff I do at Plus One EXP. You can find all that stuff 
at TonyVicinda.com. Very cool. You can find me at MikeTennyMusic.com. You can find stuff about the show at AwakenCatholic.org. You can also support this show and all the shows on Awaken Catholic by going to AwakenCatholic.org and donating a one-time donation or even better, a recurring donation, become part of the Awaken Nation. You can download the Awaken app. Um, and if you are, so you get a bunch of free content there. And then if you are part of the Awaken Nation, you also get premium content there. Talks by me and some of the other uh, show hosts and, and uh, presenters as well. So that's a great way that you can support us. You can also support us by downloading the Halo app through our site. Go to halo.app slash awaken and get, you get that free month of premium. Uh, not only will it help your prayer life, it'll help us out as well. And if, as always, you can help us in just kind of easy free ways by liking this, hitting that bell on YouTube, subscribing, sharing on Facebook, sharing in a text to a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, writing a review. All that stuff helps us, helps us out and helps us get uh, in front of the eyes and the ears of more people. So thank you for supporting this show. You can send us comments and all those things. Uh, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you to all you wonderful listeners, and we will see you next time. This show and all media on Awaken Catholic is made possible by the Awaken Nation and the Hollow app. The Awaken Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app slash awaken.